Well, uh, between 1998 and 2004, Corey and I were living just north of San Francisco in San Rafael, California. We had recently moved there because uh, I was in the Coast Guard at the time and we got transferred to this unit called the Pacific Strike Team, which sounds like you have guns and stuff, but we didn't. It was a, a, a team that responded to chemical and oil spills, right? And we were trained to work in in the ocean and on rail cars and urban environments, all kinds of different things. And um, we had full level A capability, which are those like those space suits where you have like oxygen in the in the back and they don't let water or gas in and they, you get really hot in there. So Marin County is this place that's like basically boring weather. It's like perfect weather, I guess, if you like that kind of thing. I like rain. But um, it's like always 55 to 75 year round, and sometimes it'll speak, uh, it'll peak a little bit on either side, but basically 55 to 75 year round, right? That's pretty boring to me. But anyway, so it's not a very good place to train if you have to get ready for extreme temperatures. So what we would do sometimes in the summer is we put on these level A suits and we would play volleyball or something like that, and we work up a sweat. So you kind of get used to how much air will I use when I'm under stress, and how much can I handle before I like pass out from sweat and stuff like that we'd have to get ready to work in extreme conditions. Sometimes it'd be the winter on the Oregon coast or the north slope. Uh, one time we were up there at 65 below zero or sometimes we'd be in a tropical area. And one of my most memorable uh, encounters was a job we did in Guam. Um, they say it takes two weeks to get acclimatized to a new setting, a new, a new climate. Uh, well, one day I was playing soccer in Marin County. It was about 75 degrees, as usual. And eight hours later, I was on a plane to Guam. A man on, uh, on Guam was clearing some property he had, and he came across some canisters from World War I of, of nerve gas and blistering agent. And so a team of eight of us flew to Guam to work with the Army to um, protect civilians and kind of take care of this stuff. Uh, the weather was in the 90s, 90% humidity, all right, and we had to be, my team had to be in level A standby, which means like the suits are around your waist all day and you're just kind of ready to go. It was miserable. But getting acclimated to the weather wasn't the only obstacle. We had to get acclimated to the culture as well. See, we in the West come from a time-oriented culture, which means that we are slaves to the clock. Like, for example, uh, worship was supposed to start at 5 this evening, right? So usually we start between 5 and 5.03. But if it's 5.04 or 5.05, I mean, there are people, you know who you are, they're like, we're late! Uh, okay, that's, that's how it is in the West, right? But Guam and some of the other countries are event-oriented cultures where, you know, they don't really care what time it is. They respond when events happen to them, okay? And we might think that's irresponsible or whatever, but it's just a different way to live. That's a problem when I, I'm heading my team up and I call the fire department on Guam and I say, I need 2,000 gallons of water. I need you to drive a truck to our work site at 7 a.m. because we want to start early and beat the heat. And they don't come at 7 and they don't come at 8 and they don't come at 8.30. At 10 till 9, they roll up and they're like, hey, how's it going? All jolly and happy and not apologetic at all. And we're sitting there, where the heck have you guys been? Time is not a factor. Well, over the weeks there, we got acclimated to the weather, and we got acclimated to the culture, and we dropped our expectations of anything like living in the West, and we began to start expecting, start to get acclimated to life in Guam. And life was much better once we got used to it. Now, while this talk on a Sunday evening about weather in Guam and strike teams and stuff like that, 
Because I think part of what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount is giving us a way to get acclimated to the kingdom of God. Like I've been saying from the very beginning of this series, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not some lecture about an ideal way to live. It's not some lecture that's completely disassociated from reality. In fact, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, to me, is about as practical and earthy as it gets because it is exactly about reality. Remember that just before Jesus gave his famous teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he made some astounding claims and did some astounding things to back up those claims. Jesus came into Galilee and he was proclaiming the gospel of God. He was saying that the kingdom of heaven is actually breaking into our world. It's actually close at hand. And we talked about how radical these words would have been in Jesus' day. You see, in the first century in Galilee, everybody knew who was king. Everybody knew whose kingdom you lived in. It was Caesar's. It was Caesar's kingdom. They even called Caesar Lord. So when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, You've been living as though Caesar was in charge, as if he was king. But I'm telling you about a new reality. And the new reality is that God is actually king, not Caesar. And that God's kingdom reigns, not Caesar's kingdom. And so Jesus began to show that there was indeed a new reign coming in. He didn't topple a government, but he gathered followers. He didn't start a military uprising, but he cast out demons. He didn't start a new social program, but he healed bodies and minds and spirits, and he did it for free. Jesus' kingdom is. Full stop. Jesus proclaimed that the reality of this kingdom, and that kingdom is unlike any other kingdom we've ever known. Instead of coercing people to join, Jesus simply tells people it's real, shows them that it's breaking in, and offers people the opportunity to join in the movement. So Jesus announces that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in, and his Sermon on the Mount is a foretaste or an illustration of the kind of life that is normal in God's kingdom. He gives us this information, I think, partly as a way to get acclimated to this new life. The Bible teaches us that one day Jesus is going to return in the flesh, that he's going to judge the world and that evil, all that's evil and twisted will be done away with and all that is lovely and trusting in him will be made into a new world. A world where love reigns, where our bodies don't break down and wear out. That sounds like a good plan to me. And that's what the the reality of the Sermon on the Mount is teaching. Now, lots of people in Jesus' day wanted to join the Roman Empire. Why? It was the most powerful thing around. Roman citizens had all kinds of rights that other people just didn't have. But if you were not born a Roman citizen, the only way you could possibly get in was through adoption into a Roman family or by having the right connections, usually enough money or power. Everyone else was out of luck. At best, you could be a slave in the Roman Empire. So what kind of people does the kingdom of God accept? Who's going to be included in the kingdom of God? If becoming a Roman citizen is so hard, how much harder is it going to be to enter the kingdom of heaven? 
The crowds wanted to know. This was their question. Jesus is doing all these signs of the kingdom. The crowds are coming around him. And surely they're thinking, man, you've got to be perfect. You've got to have your life squared away to be part of this thing. And then Jesus blows their minds. And the scriptures tell us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are those who are humble or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before me. Jesus, I thank you that in your beatitudes, you turn our world upside down. That if your kingdom really trumps all the other kingdoms, we would expect it would be the hardest one to get into. That we would have to be perfect. But you call us blessed when we recognize our poverty in spirit. You call us blessed when we know we need you above all else. And I thank you for that sheer grace and mercy. And I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that you would help us to lower our defenses and our pride. All those things we hold on to to maybe think we're good enough, we're strong enough, and help us to trust in you alone. Lord, I pray that you would open up this word to us as we dive into your text this evening. Holy Spirit, would you uh, take the foolish things I might say and transform us. Amen. Well, Jesus' words, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, these types of words would have just been absolutely shocking to his original hearers. I've said this before, but in Roman culture, the word grace, to have mercy on someone else, was a sign of weakness. It was absolutely countercultural. And it should really shock us as well. Jesus doesn't give entrance requirements in the sense of a list of things that we have to achieve or, or do. Instead, in essence, he's saying that everyone who trusts in him is invited into this new kingdom. In fact, when you recognize your need for him, you're blessed. Those who are mourning now, which, give it time, everybody's there, right? Comforted. With these qualities in the Beatitudes, they describe the kingdom type person. They're not qualities we can develop through positive thinking or self-help. They are qualities that Jesus develops in us as we submit to him. These Beatitudes are, I'll say it again, they're descriptive. They're not prescriptive. 
they are good news, not good advice. I think we have to be reminded of that each week because if you're like me, you want to figure out how you can do it on your own, right? John Stott, one of my favorite expositors, writes, Looking back, we can see that the first four Beatitudes reveal a spiritual progression, this is for Wasserman, of relentless logic. Each step leads to the next and presupposes the one that has gone before. To begin with, we're poor in spirit. That's the place to begin, right? Acknowledging our utter and complete spiritual bankruptcy before God. Gee, uh, John Stott, that was nice. Um, Next, we mourn over the cause of our spiritual bankruptcy. It's our sin. Yes, our sin causes this bankruptcy. It causes the corruption of our fallen nature. And we mourn over that. That's the third thing. And then Jesus develops these first three Beatitudes in us. If he does that, we can't help but embody the fourth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now it seems to me that in that sentence I just read, the key to understanding it is the word righteousness, right? Those who hunger and thirst for it are blessed, and those who hunger and thirst for it are satisfied. So we've got to figure out what it is, right? What is righteousness? First of all, let's just confess, like, that's not a word we use every day, is it? Unless you're talking like 90s surf slang, like, righteous, right? Did I do that right? Probably not. But, uh, <clears throat> or when we speak negatively about somebody, like, they're so self-righteous. I mean, otherwise, we don't really use that word in everyday conversation. At least I don't. Um, and that's probably why we need to do a little exploration in it. What does it actually mean? What did Jesus mean when he used this word? Well, for the past few weeks, you've heard me say that one of the major scriptural backdrops for Jesus' message was the prophet Isaiah's writings, and particularly Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. At the end of verse 3, it says, of the poor and oppressed that Jesus, or, or God is going to be rescuing, they will be called oaks of... Righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. In fact, in Isaiah, there's descriptions of the kingdom of God at least 17 different places in that book. And most of these descriptions of the kingdom include this word righteousness. Righteousness, or dekaiosune in Greek, is often associated with two very important Hebrew words. Now, I'm going to lose some of you here, and some of you are like, this is what I am here for. So just, just hang with me now. There's two Hebrew words that, that are kind of behind righteousness. This is mostly for Collins. Uh, mishpat and sedek. Right? I'm going to drop that guttural thing, but just get it one in your blood. Sedek. Okay, so mishpat and sedek. Mishpat often refers to justice. That's how we would translate it in English. And justice that, that mishpat is talking about is, is justice in the marketplace and justice in the court system. It's basically social justice in the sense of uh, social structures that govern our land, right? For example, if I went to Starbucks to buy a pound of coffee beans, it's going to cost, how much does that cost, 13 bucks, give or take? Okay, let's, let's call it even 13, all right? I know I'm getting a pound of coffee because in this country they have these I don't know, these Better Business Bureau and stuff like that that regulate, like they're not, they, if they get caught false advertising that pound, Starbucks is going to get sued, right? So I know I'm going to be getting a pound of coffee. 
I know that no matter what Starbucks I go to, at least in this county, it's going to cost the same price. And it's going to cost the same price whether or not I'm a man or a woman or have, no matter what my skin color or whether I'm American or Mexican, it doesn't matter. If I've got 13 bucks, I can get a legit pound of premium coffee from Starbucks. But I'd rather have it from Letter Streets. What? <laughs> But what if on any given day I am in line and there is a really handsome guy in front of me or a really hot lady, it doesn't really matter, take your pick, but the barista at the counter says, hey, for you the pound of beans cost $11. And when I get to the counter and I buy the same beans and I expect the same price, they say, oh no, you're not that attractive, your beans cost $13. Now I would be saying, discrimination, right? I could take that person to court and I'd be assured that I have a, I'd have a pretty good case against them. Why is Starbucks discriminating against me and charging me a different thing because of how I look? In Jesus' day, people at the marketplace could charge whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Partly because that's just the way it was and partly because the court system was so corrupt. For example, if you're a woman, you couldn't even testify for yourself in court. Or if you were a slave, you could not bring someone of an upper class to court against you. Okay, so if I'm a slave, I'm going to buy a pound of coffee at the marketplace, and the guy sees that he's a higher class than me, the market guy, he can charge me whatever he wants. He can charge me more than the freed person because I can't possibly take him to court. If you had money, maybe you could bribe the judge, and that still goes on today in many countries, and I suspect to some degree in our own. Uh, this is the kind of system, though, where widows and orphans and the poor, they had to endure this. They had to go to the market every day and recognize that they're paying a different price than the upper class or the people with power. And this is the kind of injustice that we read about in Isaiah and Amos and many of the prophets that God is furious about. How can my own people mistreat each other like this? Mishpat is the kind of justice that stands up against that injustice. Okay, that's mishpat. The other Hebrew word that we find next to mishpat almost all the time, especially in Isaiah, is tzedek. Tzedek is often used to describe deliverance from oppression or more fundamentally, right relatedness. Basically treating people right, okay? So it, remember in the fall when we went through Genesis? That was on purpose because it applies to all this gospel stuff. Okay, so you remember in Genesis uh, that in the beginning men and women are created in God's image. We're created in God's image. We are to be his representatives on earth. We had unbroken relationship with God and with each other and we were given the task of reflecting through our lives God's goodness and love and wise rule Reflecting that to each other and how we treat each other. Reflecting it to the plants and animals and how we steward the environment. That was our job. So that when people and the environment would look at us, they would say, man, that God must be great because I'm looking at his image. And you know, that's what we were supposed to do. But when our ancestors rebelled against God, four great relationships were broken. First, our relationship with God was broken. Think about it. Don't we have a hard time really believing that God could love us? There's always, I mean, sometimes you have good days, right? But then there's those doubts. 
And that is part of that broken relationship, that we have guilt and shame, and we go up and down in our relationship with God. Second, our relationship with ourselves is broken. You ever thought about that? When we lose touch with God and what He thinks about us, we really lose touch with with the right perspective about ourselves. We probably think far too little about ourselves, or far too well about ourselves. And if you're like me, you're a little of both, right? You've got pride in some areas, and you denigrate yourself in some areas, and I'm just a mess. I'm standing up here telling you I'm pretty much a mess. Like, I probably don't have a great perspective about myself because I'm not always in right relationship with God. And when we're screwed up about who we are, it affects the third relationship, and that's our relationship with each other. Men and women struggle for power and position, All humans size each other up, right? We size each other up. How how is this person or this country or this organization a threat to me and what's mine? And we, we kind of build these walls around each other. And fourth, we have a broken relationship with the rest of creation. We all, especially in Bellingham, you know, we have our bright spots, right? Like we love the birds and the trees and... But as a human race, we've exploited the earth. I mean, we've, we've done some terrible things. So we have this broken relationship with how we're supposed to care uh, for the planet and for um, the other creatures that God's made. So tzedek means reconciliation of those four great relationships. In the fourth beatitude, the English word righteousness is really carrying both Hebrew ideas of mishpat and tzedek. Social justice and reconciliation, relational reconciliation. In other words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for restorative justice, who hunger and thirst for a new world where we're free to lower our defenses and actually love one another. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Those are two primal verbs. There are few stronger motivators. Maybe love is the only one stronger than real genuine hunger and thirst. People have killed others, robbed others, lied and cheated in order to fill their bellies or to have a drink when dying of thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are those who are righteous... Not blessed are those who think they are God's gift to the world in terms of righteousness. Jesus told a story about attitudes like that. In fact, Tommy read it earlier from Luke 18. In this story, familiar to many of you, two men go into the temple to pray. One is this Pharisee, this religious bad you-know-what. I mean, he's following all the rules. He gets in there. He's just like, I've done everything right this week. I'm standing before God, and I'm so glad to be me. And then this other guy comes in who's a tax collector, which a tax collector is basically a a fellow countryman of the Pharisee. He's a Jewish guy, but he's a traitor. He's working for the Roman government, and oftentimes to make a living, they would take more taxes than was actually due their own countrymen. And so, I mean, he's, he's a complete swindler, actually. And he's standing in the temple, and his attitude is one of humility and shame, and he comes to God just asking for mercy. And the part I want to focus on is the beginning and the end of that story. Here's the exact words from Luke in the very beginning. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves 
that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. How does the story turn out? Who's the one who is justified? Well, it's the man who was poor in spirit, right? The man who was poor in spirit and then he was mourning his condition before God. The man who, because he was mourning his position before God, was then humble and meek before God. You see the relentless logic of the beatitude spirit being birthed in him. Poor in spirit, mourning, humility. The man who hungered and thirsted for righteousness that he knew he didn't have inside of himself. A person who is acclimated to the kingdom of God is not self-righteous or full of righteousness or the pinnacle of righteousness. A person who's getting acclimated to the kingdom hungers and thirsts for righteousness, longs and aches for our world to be set right because he or she knows the mess that we are in and knows that this mess is beyond, really, our ability to fix in our own strength. And thus, when we realize this, where are we at? We're back to square one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn the state of the world and the state of our souls. Blessed are the meek and the humble who find their identity in Christ. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the world to be put right. Because they will be satisfied. This promise to be satisfied is this uh, grammar construction we've talked about. It's the divine passive. The divine passive means that God is the one who's going to do the satisfying. And that God is the main actor in bringing this righteousness in us. I, I don't know if you... God is the main actor to bring the righteousness in us, and God is the one who's going to satisfy us. That's really good news to me. I don't know about to you, because that means that I don't have to conjure up this righteousness inside of me that I know is not really there. That I can trust Jesus to develop that in my heart, and that I can trust Him to actually bring satisfaction to those, long, to those longings. Pure grace is not up to you and me. The future... In this, in this sense, as I said, it's a divine passive, but it's also in the future because we will be satisfied. That indicates that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in our world will be satisfied at some time, some later time. For certain, Jesus is talking about the end, when Jesus promises to come and to bring his kingdom in full. I'm looking forward to that day. That's when he's going to set everything right. When there's no more tears... There's no more pain. And we'd actually be free to love each other like we're created to. But it also has a beginning now. You see, when Jesus spoke this promise to his original hearers, he hadn't died. He hadn't been resurrected yet. So he tells them, you will be satisfied. But after he was resurrected from the dead, believers receive the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of the living God. It's the Spirit that even draws you to Jesus. I say this all the time, but I don't really think, at least my theology won't let me think, that you would actually be here if the Spirit hadn't drawn you here. Now you might think, like, yeah, right, I came because I wanted to. Or somebody made me. But, <laughs> but I think that the Spirit, like, the Scriptures say that you can't even really want to seek God on your own without God working in you. That's pretty awesome. Because frankly, I wouldn't be here either if the Spirit wasn't trying me. Um, 
<laughs> the Spirit makes these ridiculous words of mine uh, with shoddy microphones have any bearing in my life and any bearing in your life. It's the Spirit that transforms our hearts, transforms our minds in Christ, that we could bear evidence of being acclimated to the kingdom. It's the Spirit that gives you and I the ability to recognize our poverty of spirit, to see the world as Jesus sees it and actually mourn about Japan and actually mourn about uh, the condition of many places in the world and in our lives. It's the Spirit that puts in our core a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. But the Spirit doesn't even stop there. The Spirit of God empowers us and sends us out on the mission of God. We're to, uh, to wait with hope for Jesus' return, but in the meantime, we engage in acts of the kingdom. We perform acts in Jesus' name. We speak out against injustice and work to protect the powerless and the weak. We engage in acts of compassion, like feeding the hungry or sending a financial gift to, to Japan, like we did today. But besides compassion, it gets better. We, keep, uh, we also work for justice. That is, working to make the social structures in our world such that there are fewer hungry people to have to feed. Why is it so many people slip through the cracks, right? So it's a rescue mission and it's a strategic change to the way that social structures are. Compassion and justice. We are to work for reconciliation between races and social groups. And, on a personal note, the broken relationships in our own lives. Everybody's got them. Now, as I'm preparing this thing and, and working with my small group on it, you guys have been very insightful, by the way, I'm guessing, and if I miss you, I'm sorry, but I'm guessing you're probably somewhat in one of two camps. You either hear this message and you are on the edge of your proverbial seat, and you're agreeing in your heart, yes, I hunger for a better world, I thirst for things to be made right, okay, that could be you, or maybe you kind of feel bad about being apathetic, and you want to want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I've got good news for both groups. I think what we're all longing for here is more of the one who can put that in our core, and that's Jesus the Christ. In the same Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gets through with this amazing teaching, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will will be opened. If you are seeking this righteousness, satisfaction to it, or if you're seeking to want to seek this hunger and thirst for righteousness, would you join me in asking Jesus to do that in us? Lord, we thank you um, that you don't just leave us with, with a bunch of words in a book, but that uh, these words as we read them and speak them are actually promises that you make to us. Lord, we're all at different places, and you know uh, where we are. And I'm thankful for that. Lord, I pray for every one of us that you would put uh, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in our hearts. 
Lord, that we would wake up and shake off the apathy, that, um, that you would give us eyes to see like you see and hearts to feel as you feel. Lord, when we're bombarded with media that shows us every, um, what's going on in pretty much every country around the world, at least the ones they choose to report on, it can be overwhelming. But Lord, I pray we wouldn't use that as an, as an excuse to shut off our emotions or shut off our minds. And Lord, uh, for those who are just hungering and thirsting for righteousness already and actually brokenhearted about it and feel paralyzed by it, Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would begin to satisfy, that you would give us as a church and even as individuals um, outlets, Lord, that you would give us ways to engage in your mission here on earth. And I also pray that you would give us unceasing hope and a vision for the kingdom that will one day come in full. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you are going to come and make all things right. Help us to hold on to that with tenacity. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just call us to believe something with our minds. But you give us a vision to live it out. And that's worth living for. Amen.